if you were here this morning, you will remember that a lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer that Jesus gave him was that if he kept God's, the summary of God's moral law perfectly, he would be saved to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We saw this morning that no human being ever since Adam's fall into sin in the beginning can keep this law perfectly, and so we need a righteousness that comes to us from outside of ourselves. Jesus provides this by keeping the law perfectly on behalf of all who trust in Him. However, the moral expectation still stands that we ought to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. All humans, Christians included, ought to be, ought to love God and neighbor perfectly. And any failure to do so is a sin. For the believer, the failure to love is no longer a damning sin because Jesus has atoned for the believer. Jesus paid it all. There is nothing outstanding for us to be punished for because Jesus is our propitiation. And so for the believer, the failure to love is not a damning sin, but is a sin for which Jesus has atoned. But it is a sin nonetheless. The gospel is not that everyone else ought to keep God's law, but we know as Christians that we are free from God's law and we no longer have moral obligations. That's not, that's not the way we ought to think about it at all. This is the way that grace is sometimes discussed when you begin talking about duties, obligations, moral imperatives. People say, don't be legalistic. We're not under the law. We're under grace. If you tease that out and work it out, the assumption that people are making is that everyone else ought to keep God's law and do what God says, but because we've been forgiven, we're no longer under the law but under grace, so we have no more moral imperatives to obey, which is bare nonsense, even as we just providentially happen to be reading in Romans 6. Are we to go on sinning then, that grace may abound, since we're no longer under the law but under grace? No, by no means. We recognize that when it comes to law-keeping or loving God and neighbor, that it's no longer for us an issue of earning our salvation or rendering us liable to hellfire, for Jesus has, has sufficiently answered the demands of the law on our behalf, such that we are counted righteous for His sake, and He has propitiated the wrath of God, such that it is no longer hanging over our heads and so it's not a salvific issue but we're still under the same obligations which is to love God with all of our heart soul strength and mind and to love our neighbor as ourself I was looking at 10 year old notes on this passage and it was like half a sheet of paper (laughs) it was like little bullet points and I was thinking boy this is, this is not really prepared, per se, so I probably could have just as easily gone back to the Joshua series and picked up in chapter 3. But I decided to, to touch this tonight after what we dealt with this morning, not because it was easy, low-hanging fruit, but because I thought that it would be complementary and uh, 
further expand and elaborate on some of the themes that were introduced to us this morning and I thought it would be profitable to us. So basically crafted a whole new sermon tonight um, as opposed to just re-preaching something that I had already preached, which I did this morning. Um, I trust that it will be helpful as we kind of continue in this vein, in this connection of thinking about loving God and loving neighbor. Let's look in this passage at the moral performance of two sisters here, Martha and Mary. Note first that Martha's service is generally commendable. Here in Luke 10, 38 to 42, Martha often gets a really bad rap. You probably have heard Martha lambasted and Mary unequivocally extolled as the exemplar of virtue here. But we should note first that Martha's service is generally commendable. John Piper, I don't remember whether it's an article or a sermon or, or what, but I came across something many years ago uh, which said, tell, tell your people, who's speaking to other pastors, and he said, tell your people not to serve God. And obviously it was a little bit of a clickbait title, as we know John Piper himself zealously serves God and you know, is helping people to grow in holiness. But it's a bit of a clickbait title because, um, or sorry, although it was a clickbait title, the point he was trying to make is that we don't actually add to God's bottom line. We don't actually improve God's situation. So it's not as if God has a deficiency, but we can help fill it by serving Him. You remember what he said, uh, that if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Right? If I, was, if I was thirsty, I wouldn't even let you know. Like All the beasts of the field are mine. I owe them the cattle on a thousand hills. Like, I don't need you. Right? So Piper was making that point that God doesn't need us. And then Piper was also trying to make the point about how grace is a gift. And it's not earned, nor is it borrowed as if God loaned it to us. And then we ought to think of the Christian life as basically a debtor's ethic. In the sense that God has advanced us justification. And after all God has done for us, now we need to pay Him back by serving Him. Right? That's a wrong way to think about the Christian life. And so I think Piper was making these points. We don't add to God's bottom line. We don't repay God for what He has done for us in the sense that we didn't merit it up front, but maybe we can merit it on the back end and sort of just like if you don't have the money for a car, you can borrow it, but then later you, you do end up paying for it in the end, right? This is not the way we ought to think of the Christian life. Grace is free, and we don't add to God's bottom line. We don't improve His situation. There's no deficiency in God that we can make up. And so Piper said, uh, provocatively, tell your people not to serve God. But we can recognize that in a very real and proper sense, serving God is good. Obviously, that doing things which are obedient to God and which are in keeping with what He has told us to do, subjecting ourselves to Him, there are Godward duties that we ought to do 
like for example, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together and so on and so forth. And then there are also manward things that we ought to do in terms of how he has told us we ought to live with respect to others. So again, just to take an easy example, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, etc., etc. Engaging in these things and engaging zealously and vigorously in these things, and thereby serving God is good. Martha serves Jesus here in this passage, and that's a good thing. In verse 38, we should note that Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. Matthew Henry says, Though at this time it was grown dangerous to entertain him, especially near Jerusalem, Yet she cared not what hazard she ran for his name's sake. Bethany was approximately the distance from Jerusalem as Shaphat Wildi is from this church. I calculated it when we were in our series in John. So, you know, it's not adjacent, but it's pretty close. And you could easily, you could easily walk that in not too much time. And there were lots of people in Jerusalem who wanted to kill Jesus. So for... Martha to welcome Jesus into her house just that short distance away from where people were actively seeking to kill Jesus did render her liable to some danger and yet she welcomed Jesus into her house then Matthew Henry says though it was expensive to entertain Christ for he did not come alone but brought his disciples with him yet she would not regard the cost of it just imagine that tomorrow you had to feed 13 men, right? And probably not, probably not one meal, but most likely a couple, if the stay was a, even just overnight, let alone if the stay was a couple days, you might have to provide several meals for 13 men, which, you know, would have been a, somewhat of a costly endeavor. Matthew Henry therefore says, we have reason to think it was not for ostentation but purely to testify of her goodwill to him that she made this entertainment. No, those who truly love Christ will think that well bestowed, which is laid out for his honor. In other words, we'd be happy to have Jesus in our home, presumably. We ought to be. <laughs> we'd be happy to receive him and whatever traveling companions he was with. Even if there were people in Wildy who wanted to kill him and we were here, Surely we would say, Jesus, come anyway. We want you here. But this is commendable then, that Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. She was well-meaning and well-intentioned, and it was, it's a credit to her name that she served Jesus. However, Martha's service fails on two counts, and Jesus does gently chide her here in this passage, even the repetition of her name, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, etc., etc. You can almost sense the affection in Jesus' voice that this is, not, this is not a harsh or stern rebuke. But as she comes with her grievance, which Jesus didn't even see fit to initiate, or to raise, but simply responds to her when she comes with her grievance. This twofold repetition of her name is this tender addressing of her and trying to highlight it 
couple of issues with her service. First thing is that her disposition was not right. She was anxious and troubled. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled. Matthew Henry says, care is good and duty, but cumber is sin and folly. And cumber being, of course, the old word for anxious and troubled. Cumbered down. Are you weak and heavy laden, as the hymn says? Cumbered with a load of care. Martha was cumbered with this service. She was anxious and troubled with this service. Listen to the way another commentator puts it, the contrast between the two ladies. And we'll come to Mary in a couple moments. But Joel Green says, Mary is depicted as one who has begun the journey of discipleship by acknowledging through her posture her submissiveness to Jesus and by listening to his word. And here's the salient point at this juncture in the sermon. Martha's doing, on the other hand, is censured, rooted as it is in her anxiety as a host, rather than in dispositions transformed by an encounter with the Word. So, Martha's doing, in the words of Joel Green, has, stems from a heart which has not been transformed. Her dispositions towards hosting, her dispositions towards serving have not yet been transformed by an encounter with the Word. We remember, I believe it was John the Apostle who said, that His commands are not burdensome. If our hearts have been transformed by an encounter with the Word, we will say, Yea and Amen. But if our hearts have not yet been transformed by an encounter with the Word, we will be anxious and troubled by the duties of service that are laid upon us. And we will find, in fact, that Christ's commands are burdensome. And so when we find this anxiousness and this troubledness, this cumberedness in our hearts with respect to serving Jesus, we know that there is something there which Jesus would gently chide. John, John, you are anxious and troubled. Right? Mal, Mal, you are anxious and troubled. Fill in your name. Right? Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled. The disposition with which Martha served was gently chided by Jesus here in this passage. Joel Green expands on this idea and says, The welcome that Jesus seeks is not epitomized in distracted, worrisome, domestic performance, but, is, but in attending to this guest, his very presence is a disclosure of the divine plan. The nature of hospitality for which Jesus seeks is realized in attending to one's guest. 
Yet Martha's speech is centered on me talk. Though she refers to Jesus as Lord, she is concerned to engage his assistance in her plans, not to learn from him his. So she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You tell her then to help me. This is what Joel Green is saying. Martha is preoccupied with her agenda and her plans and what she's up to instead of being attentive to Jesus and what He is up to. This leads her to this distracted inattentiveness to Jesus. There are dispositions here which are wrong, which Jesus gently chides. And then He says, You are anxious and troubled about many things. And there is a sense here in which Martha's service seems to be chided by Jesus as being excessive. Matthew Henry says, Martha's heart was upon it to have a very sumptuous and splendid entertainment. Great plenty, great variety, great exactness according to the fashion of that place. In other words, what was culturally customary. She was in care concerning much attendance. Note, Matthew Henry says, it does not become the disciples of Christ to affect much serving, to affect varieties, dainties, superfluities in eating and drinking. What need is there in much serving when much less will serve? Matthew Henry says. Look. Martha's concern was to do what was culturally customary. Martha's culture Martha's concern was to do what would what would receive cultural approbation as a host to do what was culturally normal. The bustle to me seems to indicate given Martha's commitment to these things. The bustle seems to indicate to me that Jesus showed up somewhat unannounced. After all, there were no cell phones in that day to call ahead and say, hey, I'm planning to be there in a couple days or a couple hours. The bustle here that's happening seems to indicate to me, especially in view of Martha's concern to make sure everything is laid out in a way that she deemed proper and fit, it seems to me that this visit of Jesus was somewhat foisted upon her on short notice. And so she would be the, the woman that wants to make sure every, every cobweb, every speck of sand or dust is removed. You know, and all the throw pillows and couch cushions are all straight and laid up. And if there are any carpeted sections that they've all been vacuumed or, or rugs have been taken outside of the house and the dust has been beat out of them. 
it, the, the, there's air freshener and extra rolls of toilet paper in the bathroom and you know on and on and on it goes right we know we know the mentality here right but Jesus doesn't seem to actually commend this mentality Jesus actually seems to undermine this mentality because what has happened is that Martha's preoccupation has actually become the house as opposed to the one who is visiting it. And she has become inattentive to her house guest by being overly attentive to the house. So Matthew Henry says, what need is there of much serving when much less will serve? In other words, Certainly we can recognize that there is a, there's a sense in which we, we need to adequately provide for our guests. And I suppose there's nothing wrong at all with some advance notice if you have the time and space without becoming anxious or troubled to lay everything on for an impending house guest. And if you want to really do it up, make sure everything is just so. And if you can do that, with the right dispositions, with the heart that has been transformed by the word and you have sufficient notice of your house guest's arrival and so on and so forth, then go ahead and do that. But there seems to be something amiss when Martha could have done much less and adequately provided for and adequately hosted Jesus and given Jesus then more of her attention without redirecting it to the affairs of the physical environment and presumably the food that they were about to eat and so on and so forth. Worldly business is then a snare to us, Matthew Henry says, when it hinders us from serving God and getting good to our souls. Just like, say for example, with your career, Nothing wrong with having a career. In fact, it's good to have a career. But it is also possible to do too much. And it is possible to be overly fixated on that such that it it diverts our attention from the people that we are called to love and from the God that we are called to love. And so we are anxious and troubled about many things when one thing is necessary. And I think in this case... What we're beginning to see is that what Jesus wants is the attentiveness of Martha. What Jesus wants is not so much her service, but her fellowship. What Jesus wants is not so much her service, but her heart, her engagement. The Christian life is really quite simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Right? One, we could say one thing is necessary, love. And that would be a true point. And yet, how easy is it in life to become anxious and troubled about many things when really only one thing is necessary? Love. Now, obviously, love involves some service. As I mentioned earlier, Piper was provocative when he set up service against Uh, essentially love there is some service required in love 
The service of God is part and parcel of loving God. And service of others is part and parcel of loving neighbors. But there is also a sense in which it is possible to have too many irons in the fire, to let our hearts get really anxious and troubled, and to be distracted with many things and lose the forest for the trees. What's the point of having house guests? It's so that you can engage with one another, make space in your life to care for someone else and welcome them, not just into a physical space, which they could go to a coffee shop and have a nice, clean environment where they could eat some good food, but to welcome them into your home, to welcome them into your space, to welcome them into your heart, to welcome them into relationship and fellowship with you. So there are a couple things amiss here with respect to Martha's service of Christ. Now, on the other hand, Mary's prioritization of the person of Jesus and his teaching is commended. As I shared with you already, Joel Green says, Mary is depicted as one who has begun the journey of discipleship by acknowledging through her posture, her submissiveness to Jesus, and by listening to his word. We read here, Martha had a sister, this is in 1039, Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. For the third gospel, Luke, to listen to the word is to have joined the road of discipleship. In spite of the reality that in this period, Jewish women were normally cast into the role of domestic performance in order to support the instruction of men rather than as persons who were themselves engaged in study. So Mary has actually done the countercultural thing. Mary is doing the culturally normal, sorry, Martha is doing the culturally normal thing. Mary is doing the countercultural thing. Martha is doing what any normal Jewish woman would do. And Jesus kind of undermines a little bit in that nuanced way that I've just tried to elaborate at some length. Jesus kind of undermines that in some way. And then Mary is doing this strange countercultural thing where she is, she's not stayed in the kitchen with the ladies, she's gone to the den where the men are, you know, to have their uh, cigars and talk politics and religion, you know, like this, in this stereotypical system, right? What Mary's doing is somewhat culturally unusual. But here she is sitting at Jesus' feet as a disciple, which culturally would have been, it would have been mostly men who would be expected to be in that situation. But here's Mary, eager to spend time with Jesus, eager to listen, eager to be attentive, eager to learn, eager to be equipped, though we believe at CRBC that, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women are not to, to be permitted to teach or to exercise authority over men and therefore ought not to hold the role of pastors. Nevertheless, women are to be engaged in discipleship, aren't they? Go therefore and make disciples. Well, who is it? Just the men? 
Right? You see, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, being serious about theology. One of the commentators pointed out that the very fact that Mary sits at the Lord's feet and is listening to his teaching, the way that that's phrased, it seems that it wasn't just this conversation, but it was actually a monologue. It was a discourse. Jesus was teaching. So there was this, it wasn't just sort of informal fellowship in the living room. It was Jesus had assumed the position of a teacher. And so here is Mary getting serious about theology, getting serious about the word, getting serious about following Jesus and being ministered to as well as being equipped to go and eventually go and make disciples as the the commission would be given to the church at large. There are sort of not there's a sort of unbiblical kind of complementarianism if I can put it that way which still wants to relegate women essentially to the to the periphery of church life and to the periphery of any gatherings where theology is being seriously discussed or seriously engaged with and so on and so forth almost like real theology is the men's work and why aren't the women preparing sandwiches in the church kitchen for the luncheon the refreshments afterward this is that mentality comes nowhere from the bible but there is sort of that thought and it seems that without equating modern that kind of modern complementarianism with first century judaism it seems that there was something somewhat analogous where there was this sense of impropriety for Mary to be there, listening, learning, soaking it in, being serious about following Jesus, being serious about theology, which is why Martha comes and says, look, Lord, she's not doing the ladies' work, right? Look at me, look at what I'm doing. I'm doing what's culturally normal. I'm doing what's culturally acceptable. Tell her to help me. There had to be this assumption that what was what Mary should have been doing is what Martha was doing. Because Martha assumes that Jesus is going to be on her side on this particular issue. But Jesus, in gently chiding Martha, also condones and commends Mary's behavior in this situation and the, the way that she has prioritized. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Mary's heart implicitly then is not anxious and troubled. Mary's heart is not distracted with many things. Mary's keeping it simple. Jesus is in our house. I love him. I'm going to focus on him. I'm going to attend to him. This is not to, as I said in the beginning, Martha's service is somewhat commendable. And I'm, I'm sure Mary was not without her faults, without her blemishes. So this is not entirely to sort of whitewash Mary and blackball Martha. 
But this is simply to say, with respect to the specific dynamics that are here in this passage, Jesus does gently chide Martha's mentality and does command Mary's. I think there are a few applications here for us as we think about this passage. The first one, and I think the most obvious and central one to this passage at hand, concerns not gender roles, but discipleship and its centrality and priority over all else. I think before this is a passage about generals, before this is even a passage about hospitality, this is a passage about discipleship. And if it was two men, let's call them Mark and Marty, I think we still could have the same sort of thing here, where Mark is busy mowing the grass, you know, and firing up the barbecue and Marty is just sitting there talking to Jesus. I think we could have the same sort of scenario play out. I think there are applications to gender roles and hospitality, which I'm going to come to in a moment. But I think those are secondary and tertiary. I think the first and central thing that is here in this passage is the prioritization of discipleship to Jesus over all other earthly priorities. In other words, we know that we need to cook meals. We know that we need to do laundry. We know that we need to sweep the floors. We know that we need to go earn money so that we can even do hospitality. We know that we need to have careers. We know that there are many practical affairs in this world which require our attention. And these are not simply necessary evils. Some people basically act like all of, the, all of those things are just necessary evils and we should do the bare minimum so that we can spend the most time you know, being in church services and helping out with the youth group and praying and doing our devotions and you know, all these sorts of things, listening to Christian podcasts and so on and so forth. Some people disparage the practical things like cutting the grass and having a career and whatever as if we should really be doing as little of that as possible so that we can do more Christian activities. That's not what I'm telling you tonight. Those are good things and those are legitimate things. And God wants us to work at those things as unto the Lord. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all the might, all your might. One of the ways that I put it to you before is not so much that we minimize the secular in order to maximize the sacred, but rather the way the Bible puts it to us is that we ought to do the secular well as well as the sacred. But here's the thing. We can become so anxious and troubled both with the secular and with the sacred which are kind of blended here in this passage since it's not just someone that they're hosting, but Jesus whom they're hosting, which moves that sort of hospitality then out of the secular and into the sacred, if you know what I mean. We can be so 
we can become so anxious and troubled about cutting the grass and cooking the food and sweeping the floors and working our jobs and so on and so forth that the whole manner in which we are doing life has not been transformed by the paradigm that the scripture gives us that we are loved that we are accepted by God that we have a father in heaven who cares for us and will take care of our needs as he clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air don't do not worry about tomorrow don't be anxious and troubled there is someone up there looking out for us we have a heavenly father we don't have to earn our salvation you are made in the image of God. You are seen and known and loved in spite of your imperfections. You don't have to insecurely go around proving yourself by your constant striving and so on and so forth. These are things that we can bring to bear such that we do our cooking and our cleaning and our secular work without anxious and troubled hearts. The anxious and troubled heart of Mary, or Martha is chided here. And if you're going about all of your secular work or even your sacred work with anxious and troubled hearts, this passage speaks to that. And Jesus implicitly chides doing things with an anxious and troubled heart. Secondly, it is possible to be distracted by many things when one thing is necessary. It's possible to lose the forest for the trees, which is what happens here. Cooking's great. Cleaning's great. Working your career is great. All of these things are good, legitimate, noble enterprises, but it's possible to get so preoccupied with them that Jesus could be sitting in your living room and you're still working away at all these other things and failing to prioritize the way that you should. It's possible, in other words, to overdo it. It's possible to be excessive. It's possible, as Matthew Henry put it, to be involved in much serving when much less will serve. Consider, for example, church attendance. And I know it's Sunday night and I'm preaching to the choir here because you're all here. But consider when your mentality is, I can't come to church because I need to cook, I need to clean, I need to do laundry, I need to attend to my career etc etc whatever it is here we have this providential opportunity to be where Jesus has promised to be where two or three are gathered in my name there I am with them also again there's a time for your career there's a time for laundry there's a time for cooking there's a time for cleaning there's a time for planning the upcoming week etc etc but let me just ask you this. Isn't there also a time for Jesus? Isn't there a time to sit at His feet? Isn't there a time to put away 
much serving and simply sit as a disciple at the feet of Jesus. I think that many modern day Christians need to be chided gently by Jesus in the way that first century Martha was. That there is preoccupation with many things when there is one thing that is tantamount paramount importance that really ought to have been prioritized. I think the first application of this passage is that service is good, but it needs to be done with the right dispositions, within the right context and paradigm, and it needs to be done in the right proportion while we keep discipleship to Jesus front and center. And that's the very first, most central application of this passage. The second one, and I think we can hit this fairly quickly because I, I actually don't think it's very complex. The second one is simply this, the openness of Christ's kingdom to women. To us, that's probably a very non-controversial point. And yet, even in Jesus' day, as I've pointed out, it would have been countercultural for Mary to sit there at Jesus' feet and learn the way that the men would. Recognizing that men and women are different and that God has made us to be complementary one to another is part and parcel of good, sound biblical religion. But also central to good, sound biblical religion is also the fact that though men and women are different, they are equal in God's eyes. Equal is not same. Equal is equal. Of equal value. In the beginning, He made them in His image. Male and female. Men are in His image. Women are in His image. Women are of equal dignity. Equal value. Equal worth. Peter says that our wives are co-heirs with us. Of the life that we have in Christ Jesus. This may not be a culturally shocking thing for us to say in the 21st century West. Probably the more shocking thing for us to say in the 21st century West is that men and women are different. (laughs) That there are roles like being pastors which are only for men. That's probably more shocking. But we we should, as much as we emphasize that point, we should also emphasize the point that women are welcome by Jesus as equals, as co-heirs in the Christian life. And that women are full-blooded, 100% legitimate, genuine disciples of Christ. That they're welcomed and encouraged to learn theology and to grow in Christ Jesus and to be participants in our mutual ministry one to another and in the discipleship and evangelism that we are to be engaged in as Christians. That's, I think, a clear takeaway from this passage here in Jesus condoning Mary's sitting at His feet and learning from Him. The third one, I think I've I've danced around it and alluded to it, the third application that I think is important to make is the nature of true hospitality. 
I think there are a few things that we see here in this passage about the nature of true hospitality. We've talked about disposition already, but I would just raise it again in this specific context. That, that hospitality is not to be extended with an anxious and troubled heart. That we ought to think about hospitality in a way that doesn't have to lead us to anxiety and trouble. I don't think that we have to be so attached to the cultural norms of what hospitality means and what hospitality looks like that it becomes an anxiety-producing thing and a troubling thing to think about having someone in your home. So Jesus and 12 men show up tomorrow, Monday, September 18th, 2023, to your home. Just as you're maybe just as you're getting home from work, for those of you who work outside the home, for those of you who are stay-at-home wives or moms, sometime in the middle of the day, Jesus and 12 other men show up. What happens to your heart? Oh, I'm so glad that Jesus is here. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Or this, what feels like a tightening of a, of a belt around your chest. Anxiety. Trouble. My home is not ready. My house is not prepared. What am I going to feed these men? Right? Somewhere there. And I, know I can't get into all the specifics and all of the weeds of this the nuts and bolts of this tonight. But I think if the anxiety and the being troubled about it is your first response, you probably have something to learn about the paradigm with which we should be thinking about hospitality. Because Jesus expected Martha in this passage to, to host him and his disciples without being anxious and troubled. I think that's an implication of this passage. So maybe we need to think about it differently and set ourselves free from some of the cultural expectations that would lead us to being anxious and troubled about hosting Jesus. One of those things, I think, is, is probably what Jesus alludes to here about her being anxious and troubled about many things. That there's an excessiveness to Martha's service. There's an excessiveness to Martha's hospitality. There's an excessiveness to Martha's preparations. As Matthew Henry said, what need is there of much serving when much less will serve? Maybe one of the ways that we could be less anxious and less troubled about hosting 13 men unexpectedly is that we could embrace a paradigm of moderation and not place on ourselves the cultural burdens that it has to look a certain way, but we could make adequate, more adequate and more modest provision for our guests and actually attend to the, their persons as opposed to attending to the physical environment and food and whatnot. I think that that is a implication here about her being anxious and troubled about many things. The logic here 
so that I hope, which I'll share with you so that in the hope that you will see that I'm not stretching the text. The logic here is reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If hosting Jesus doesn't need to be excessive. If hosting Jesus doesn't need to lead us to be anxious and troubled, then surely it stands to reason that hosting other mere men, that hosting other mere women, that hosting someone unexpectedly for a meal, hosting someone unexpectedly uh, for an overnight stay if someone comes in need or something like this, hosting someone even with advance notice, hosting a smaller group, hosting a larger group, which I would say 13 men are, right? If, if even hosting Jesus and his 13 disciples ought not to have us anxious and troubled and could be done more modestly than what Martha does in this passage with the approbation of Jesus, the approval of Jesus, then surely hosting guests who are lesser than Jesus could also likewise be done without becoming anxious and troubled and could be done in a more modest fashion. That's the logic that I'm trying to to pull this out here. Remember what we have just heard talked about in the parable of the Good Samaritan immediately prior is that it all boils down to love for God and love for our neighbors. Therefore, it's a fair paradigm to apply to what immediately follows that we're contrasting the way Mary loves Jesus with the way that Martha loves Jesus. And we're looking at some commendable aspects of the way that Martha loves Jesus as well as some shortcomings. And we're looking at a particularly commendable aspect of how Mary loves Jesus. In this case, in Luke, at the end of Luke 10, Jesus was their neighbor. If Jesus is teaching them about how they are loving Him as their neighbor and ways in which they are succeeding or failing in loving Him as their neighbor, and if Jesus points Martha in a better direction for how she can love Him as her neighbor, then it stands to reason, again, moving from the greater to lesser, that these principles of how these women are loving Jesus, and particularly how Martha could love Jesus better, would also be applicable as we consider more broadly loving other lesser neighbors. So, the three applications, prioritization of discipleship to Jesus above other earthly priorities. Do the secular well, but do the sacred well. Get your devotions in. Get to church. Prioritize fellowship with the saints and all the other healthy Christian habits. There's a place for these other things, but there's also a place for just sitting at Jesus' feet and so on and so forth. Secondly, the openness of the kingdom to women. Though we are different, men and women, we are equal. Thirdly, the nature of true hospitality. Not to be done with an anxious and troubled disposition. It's to be done with moderation and attentiveness to the guest. May God help us attend our hearts to Him. And then by extension, 
to those made in His image as we move towards them in love and hospitality.